Chapter 17 of Where No Fear Was, a book about fear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenzie Tartaglioni. Where No Fear Was, a book about fear, by Arthur Christopher Benson. Chapter 17 simplicity if we are to avoid the dark onset of fear we must at all costs simplify life because the more complicated and intricate our life is and the more we multiply our defenses the more gates and posterns there are by which the enemy can creep upon us property comforts habits conveniences these are the vantage grounds from which fears can organize their invasions the more that we need excitement, distraction, diversion, the more helpless we become without them. All this is very clearly recognized and stated in the gospel. Our Savior does not seem to regard the abandonment of wealth as a necessary condition of the Christian life, but he does very distinctly say that rich men are beset with great difficulties owing to their wealth, and he indicates that a man who trusts complacently in his possessions is tempted into a disastrous security. He speaks of laying up treasure in heaven as opposed to the treasures which men store up on earth, and he points out that whenever things are put aside unused, in order that the owner may comfort himself by the thought that they are there if he wants them, decay and corruption begin at once to undermine and destroy them. What exactly the treasure in heaven can be, it is hard to define. It cannot be anything quite so sordid as good deeds done for the sake of spiritual investment because our Savior was very severe on those who, like the Pharisees, sought to acquire righteousness by scrupulosity. Nothing that is done just for the sake of one's own future benefit seems to be regarded in the gospel as worth doing. The essence of Christian giving seems to be real giving, and not a sort of usurious loan. There is, of course, one very puzzling parable, that of the unjust steward, who used his last hours in office before the news of his dismissal could get abroad in cheating his master in order to win the favor of the debtors by arbitrarily diminishing the amounts of their debts. It seems strange that our Savior should have drawn a moral out of so immoral an incident. Perhaps he was using a well-known story, and even making allowances for the admiration with which in the East resourcefulness, even of a fraudulent kind, was undoubtedly regarded. But the principle seems clear enough, that if the Christian chooses to possess wealth, he runs a great risk, and that it is therefore wiser to disembarrass oneself of it. Property is regarded in the gospel as an undoubtedly dangerous thing. But so far from our Lord preaching a kind of socialism and bidding men to cooperate anxiously for the sake of equalizing wealth, he recommends an individualistic freedom from the burden of wealth altogether. But, as always in the gospel, our Lord looks behind practice to motive, and it is clear that the motive for the abandonment of wealth is not to be a desire to act with a selfish prudence in order to lay an obligation upon God to repay one generously in the future for present sacrifices, but rather the attainment of an individual liberty, which leaves the spirit free to deal with the real interests of life. And one must not overlook the definite promise that if a man seeks virtue first, even at the cost of earthly possessions and comforts, he will find that they will be added as well. Those who would discredit the morality of the gospel would have one believe that our Savior in dealing with the shrewd, homely, literal folk was careful to promise substantial future rewards for any worldly sacrifices they might make. But not so can I read the gospel. Our Savior does undoubtedly say plainly that we shall find it worth our while to escape from the burdens and anxieties of wealth, 
but the reward promised seems rather to be a lightness and contentment of spirit and a freedom from heavy and unnecessary bonds in our complicated civilization it is far more difficult to say what simplicity of life is it is certainly not that expensive and dramatic simplicity which is sometimes contrived by people of wealth as a pleasant contrast to elaborate living i remember the son of a very wealthy man who had a great mansion in the country in a large house in london telling me that his family circle were never so entirely happy as when they were living at close quarters in a small scotch shooting lodge where their life was comparatively rough and luxuries unattainable but i gathered that the main delight of such a period was the sense of laying up a stock of health and freshness for the more luxurious life which intervened the anglo-saxon naturally loves a kind of feudal dignity he likes a great house a crowd of servants and dependents the impression of power and influence which it all gives and the delights of ostentation of having handsome things which one does not use and indeed hardly ever sees of knowing that others are eating and drinking at one's expense which is a thing far removed from hospitality are dear to the temperament of our race we may say at once that this is fatal to any simplicity of life it may be that we cannot expect anyone who is born to such splendors deliberately to forego them but i am sure of this that a rich man now and here who spontaneously parted with his wealth and lived sparely in a small house would make perhaps as powerful an appeal to the imagination of the english world as could well be made if a man had a message to deliver there could be no better way of emphasizing it it must not be a mere flight from the anxiety of worldly life into a more congenial seclusion it should be done as francis of assisi did it by continuing to live the life of the world without any of its normal conveniences patent invisible self-sacrifice if it be accompanied by a tender love of humanity will always be the most impressive attitude in the world but if one is not capable of going to such lengths if indeed one has nothing that one can resign how is it possible to practice simplicity of life it can be done by limiting one's needs by avoiding luxuries by having nothing in one's house that one cannot use by being detached from pretentiousness by being indifferent to elaborate comforts there are people whom i know who do this and who even though they live with some degree of wealth are yet themselves obviously independent of comfort to an extraordinary degree there is a puritanical dislike of waste which is a very different thing because it often coexists with an extreme attachment to the particular standard of comfort that the man himself prefers i know people who believe that a substantial midday meal and a high tea are more righteous than a simple midday meal and a substantial dinner but the right attitude is one of unconcern and the absence of uneasy scheming as to the details of life there is no reason why people should not form habits because method is the primary condition of work but the moment that habit becomes tyrannous and elaborate then the spirit is at once in bondage to anxiety the real victory over these little cares is not forever to have them on one's mind or one becomes like the bread and butterfly and through the looking-glass whose food was weak tea with cream in it but supposing it cannot find any said alice then it dies said the gnat who was acting the part of interpreter but that must happen very often said alice it always happens says the gnat with sombre emphasis simplicity is in fact a difficult thing to lay down rules for because the essence of it is that it is free from rules and those who talk and think most about it are often the most uneasy and complicated natures but it is certain that if one finds oneself growing more and more fastidious in particular more and more easily disconcerted and put out and hampered by any variation from the exact scheme of life that one prefers even 
if that scheme is an apparently simple one, it is certain that simplicity is at an end. The real simplicity is a sense of being at home and at ease in any company and mode of living, and a quiet equanimity of spirit which cannot be content to waste time over the arrangements of life. Sufficient food and exercise and sleep may be postulated, but these are all to be in the background, and the real occupations of life are to be work and interests and talk and ideas and natural relations with others. One knows of houses where some trifling omission of detail, some failure of service in a meal, will plunge the hostess into a dumb and incommunicable despair. The slightest lapse of the conventional order becomes a cloud that intercepts the sun, but the right attitude to life, if we desire to set ourselves free from this self-created torment, is a resolute avoidance of minute preoccupations, a light-hearted journeying with an amused tolerance for the incidents of the way. A conventional order of life is useful only insofar as it removes from the mind the necessity of detailed planning and allows it to flow punctually and mechanically in an ordered course. But if we exalt that order into something sacred and solemn, then we become pharisaical and meticulous, and the savor of life is lost. One remembers the scene in David Copperfield which makes so fine a parable of life. How the merry party who were making the best of an ill-cooked meal and grilling the chops over the lodging house fire were utterly disconcerted and reduced to miserable dignity by the entry of the ceremonious servant with his pray permit me and how his decorous management of the cheerful affair cast a gloom upon the circle which could not even be dispelled when he had finished his work and left them to themselves end of chapter seventeen recording by kenzie tartaglioni